Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wiggum. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 400 of the, Lawyer, of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ron Baker about how to kill the billable hour. Today's 400th podcast is brought to you by Albatross Legal Workspaces, Postali, and Posh Virtual Receptionists. We wouldn't have been able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned. We'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. Sorry I interrupted your introduction with a woo for our 400, but it felt like a woo moment. Yeah, it's worth celebrating. I mean, it's impressive that the show has reached episode 400 and is actually as popular as ever, which really makes me proud. I know. But so many episodes. How many years is that? 400? Like, how, when, what year? I'm asking you this, like, I don't know because it's a podcast style interview, but what year did the podcast first start? I feel like I should know that. I, I know, but I think it, it predates both you and me and the company. So it would make sense that it's not like at the top of our mind, but it was just Sam and Aaron, co-founders and lawyers at the time, right? Yeah. I think over seven years ago, I'm sure somebody can figure that out, but it's- Yeah, been- somebody tell us. Yes. <laughs> I would have had it at the ready if I knew you were going to ask me that. I know, I surprised you. I know. I surprised you, but that's what keeps it fresh and fun. But in this episode, what I think is particularly interesting is when I first started at Lawyerist, one of the very first things you said to me, and this is true, was something about the billable hour. And it was not something I was super familiar with at the time. You know, I kind of knew it because my mom works in the law, but it wasn't something at the top of my mind. And even then, now this is almost three or four years ago, you were really passionate about it. How did you become passionate about the billable hour? Because you started in traditional law billing, right? Yeah, I feel like we should qualify that I'm passionate about killing it, not that I'm killing it. Yes, I'm sorry. No, not passionate about keeping it. Yes. Kill it. No, I mean, I build by the hour for the most of my professional career as a lawyer. And everybody has heard me say this, and I say it to Ron in this interview, like it definitely sucks a little bit of your soul every time you hour uh, bill by the hour. And what I remember being the most frustrating to me is before I was a lawyer, I had this nice little job, like my first professional job. I remember it so well. And I remember if I was really great and I got all my work done, like I could take Friday off and skip Mm -hmm. out early. I mean, you know, the boss was fine with that because it was like a treat. And then you could go start your weekend. And I just remember being a young 20 something and getting to leave the office early on Friday was the most amazing feeling. Totally. Fast forward to when I was a lawyer and I suddenly realized I had all this in a way flexibility because I could leave on Friday whenever I wanted, but it just meant that I'd have to bill on Sunday or Monday Mm. of the next week or some other time. Like it wasn't that I got a reward and got more of my time back for being efficient and being really good at my job. It just meant I had to trade around when I was going to work and I was always going to have to work this certain number of hours every year, no matter what, if I want it to hit my goals and if I want it to generate enough revenue for the firm. And that 
concept just depressed the hell out of me. Like it really, it was like not rewarding. Like I didn't get rewarded for doing a good job and being efficient and getting my work done fast. Right. Like you got more work. (laughs) Exactly. I just got more work. Yeah. And so I remember when I kind of shifted and decided to start doing this work and I left the law firm. Interesting enough, Ron Baker's book was one of the first that I picked up and he just articulated so clearly why the billable hour was terrible. And I was like, yes, this is what I've been thinking all along. And I just didn't know how to put it into words. And so in a strange way, it's apropos that we have Ron on for this episode, because in a way, the billable hour still reflects to me what the old way of practicing law was and has been. And he even states in the interview, like when it started, so you can find out the exact year. And I think what we're trying to do with lawyerists and what we try to teach in lab is that it doesn't have to be this way, that you can actually create a business where you do really quality work for your clients And if you change the way you charge, then you can make more money and work less. And isn't that what everybody wants? They want to make more and do less or do it differently and take Friday afternoon off and not have to make up for it on Sunday. So I was excited to do this interview. I think we get really fired up at the end so everybody can (laughs) stay tuned and listen for that. (laughs) You mentioned that earlier after you recorded, and now I'm really curious what happens at the end of this interview. Yeah, we get we get pretty fired up about things so people can, you know, tell us what you think. I mean, if this still pushes your buttons and you're still billing by the hour and you want to fight me on this, I love this. No, I love the fight. Like I'm like bring Meet it her in the alley after yeah, this episode. Bring it on and let's figure it out because I guarantee you there's a different way that you can price your services. I know in my heart, you know, could there be certain times when the bill hour makes sense? Maybe, but I'm going to press back and say, I bet there's a different way always. So yeah, so I'm excited. And I'm, you know, this Jennifer, as a coach, my job is to push people a little bit sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? Like, if all I'm doing is giving you platitudes, then that doesn't really help. So maybe this is me as coach Stephanie saying, kill the billable hour, there's a better way. And let's figure it out. Yeah. Well, happy 400. Let's hear your conversation with Ron. I'm Ron Baker, and I'm a recovering CPA. I love that, Ron, because we often hear people say recovering attorneys. And so tell us, what are you doing now that you've found your way? Wow. Once I stopped practicing, I started the Barris Age Institute, which was really dedicated to teaching professionals value pricing with a stated purpose of literally eliminating both the billable hour and the timesheet across all professions. And I truly do believe that the only place time spent should matter is in prison. Mm, I love that. I often say that every point one I had to write down on my timesheet, I felt like it sucked a little bit more of my soul away. Yeah. <laughs> so. It does. It's terrible. It's It bifurcates your life into billable, non-billable. If you're non-billable, you feel guilty about being with your family or your kid's soccer game or whatever it might be. It's a terrible way to live. More importantly, it's a suboptimal way to run a business. Yeah. I mean... I'm with you right here, but we may still have a few naysayers in the audience. So for those who are, who are ready and need to think beyond the billable hour, like what do you say to that crowd? Elaborate on why it's bad for your business. Well, the billable hour, it looks inward and value is created outside the organization. It happens outside the four walls with your customers. 
And inside, we only have costs and efforts and activities and labor and all of that. But that's not what creates the result. So I tell people, it's kind of like when a loved one or a friend has a baby. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear about the labor pains. You want to see the baby. And yet the billable hour business model, it not only focuses on the labor pains, it measures them in six-minute contractions and then bills the customer for them. That's insane because what the customer cares about is the baby. Yeah. I suspect conceptually a lot of people hear that and they say, yeah, I know. I know I should try something else. But the billable hour is easy and it's known, right? Like there's no guesswork. I don't have to roll up my sleeves and figure out this thing called pricing. And so it's just really tempting to stay with it. Absolutely. That's a process known as one economist labeled it satisficing. We do what is sufficient and, you know, satisfactory. We don't set out to optimize or maximize. We set out to do good enough. And you know what? The Bill of Blower, it's been around 100 years, 103 years. I can pinpoint the exact year for you, 1919. It was invented by a lawyer by the name of Reginald Eber Smith who was a Harvard-educated lawyer who was the first person that we are aware of to adopt both the Bill of Lauer and the timesheet in his, I think he ran a legal clinic. And then he went on to run, uh, forget the name of the firm. Either way, it's 103 years old. <laughs> okay. And because he was Harvard-educated, he was greatly influenced by the zeitgeist of his time, which was the scientific management revolution. You know, Frederick Winslow Taylor, that guy that went around with a stopwatch and timed everybody thinking that we could make everything more efficient, housewise, trains, everything. He was a complete fraud, by the way. But this goes back 103 years. And my question is, has the economy changed? (laughs) Has the way we work, is our customers' expectations, have they changed? Of course they have, and we have to adapt. So the model is suboptimal, even though it's well understood. I don't think customers like it. And there's a big myth out there in the legal space that I have found that they say the customers demanded it. Customers did no such thing. It's businesses that control their pricing policies. It's the supply side, not the demand side. I didn't ask for Uber surge pricing. (laughs) I never asked my airline to go to revenue management or dynamic pricing. These changes happen on the supply side, not the demand side. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I hear that a lot from lawyers and they'll say, no, my clients want this or or they demand it. And I want to push back and be like, "Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Who doesn't want to know the price of what they're buying before they buy it? Name one thing for me where that takes place. Now, people say, well, healthcare. Okay, healthcare, though, you're not paying your own money. You're using insurance, copay, all of that. How about when you go buy non-covered healthcare like plastic surgery and things like that, the price is known to the penny. LASIK surgery, known to the penny. Veterinarians for your dog or pet, known to the penny before you buy. Yeah, That's how markets work. And so talk to us about what approaches should we be taking when we're thinking about how to set our prices? What's the better way? Better way is to stop being so obsessed with cost. I mean, Hourly billing is a form of cost plus pricing, and that's why the timesheet came into the the picture. Reginald Heber Smith actually didn't start the timesheet because 
he wanted to measure efficiency. He did it because he wanted to track the cost to make sure his pricing was right, even though for a lot of things he was giving a fixed price. But you should think about the value to the customer. So, for example, if you think about value and you think about price and you think about cost, those are the three components of any transaction, cost, price, and value. Now, if you think about a bottle of water, okay, Pepsi, Coke, they know what it takes to produce a bottle of water. That's not rocket surgery. And then you think about the price that we pay for that bottle of water. That's kind of an interesting question on its own, because if you buy it in a Sam's Club or a Costco, you might be paying a nickel for every bottle because you're buying it by the pallet. If you buy it in a Safeway or other type of grocery store, it might be 20 cents a bottle. But what if you buy it in a hockey stadium? or a NASCAR track, or an amusement park? How about an airport? How about a mini bar in a five-star, four-star hotel? That water changes in price dramatically. I mean, dramatically from 20 cents to $7 sometimes. It's still H2O. It's the same product. That shows us that there's not one optimal price for a particular product or service. There's a range of optimal prices that we're willing to pay. Now put cost and price aside and just think about the value of that water, no matter where you're buying it. Well, if you were in the desert and you were dehydrated for three or four days, that bottle of water would be priceless to you. You'd trade everything you owned and you'd even go into debt. If you're washing your dog with the same quantity of water, now it's got much less value. And if you're flooded in your basement with water, now it's got a negative value. You've got to pay somebody to pump it out. We didn't change the product, Stephanie. It's H2O. <laughs> and yet the value went from near infinite to negative. Nothing can explain that. Accounting can't explain that. Cost accounting can't explain that. Generally accepted accounting principles can't explain that. The only thing that explains that is to have a sane theory of value, and that is all value is subjective. Value is not a number. It's a feeling. And I think that's why we professionals have so much trouble with it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I track that. And yet what the hell do I do with it next? <laughs> you know, right. what's a feeling. So it, to keep the analogy going, is your customer in the desert or are they washing their dog or are they in their basement flooded? Because prices, there's two laws I'll give you all value is subjective. That's the first law of pricing. The second law of pricing is all prices are contextual. What we're willing to pay for something is insanely determined by what we compare it to. So if I said to you, would you like to buy my unicorn? You'd have no idea what to pay for a unicorn because you never bought one before. Well, it's the same thing with pricing. It's highly contextual as the desert and the washing the dog and the flooded in the basement illustrates. So we have to understand what it is our customers are trying to achieve save their life, clean their dog, save their home from, you know, water damage. And I think that requires us to do a thorough diagnosis and know what the customer's desired future state is, because that kind of, that's the expectation that they come to the table with. Sometimes that expectation is unrealistic. We have to educate them. If it's totally unrealistic and we can educate them, then we probably have to withdraw from the engagement. But we need to have that conversation that diagnosis, because as the doctors say, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. Yeah. And so I think what you're really talking about is this idea of value-based pricing, where you're setting your price based on the value that the client assigns to it. Is that a close enough definition? 
Yeah. It, it, of course, the client doesn't assign a value and they don't know what the value is a lot of times. They're not going to give you a number because, again, value is not a number. This is, that, this is why this is really difficult to articulate. But you have to start with that value conversation. You have to start with what the client's desired future state is, whatever that might be. If you can help that, guide that transformation from where they are to where they want to be, then what is the value of that to them? Well, there's going to be, obviously, there could be some material value, could be less risk, it could be more profit, could be things that we can quantify. But then there's going to be a spiritual component to the value. And by, by spiritual, I don't mean religious. I mean things, something spiritual, by definition, it can't be measured. And I think a lot of the value that we as professionals bring, just like doctors, lawyers, accountants, is spiritual. It can't be measured. It's the relationship. It's the caring. It's the you're in good hands. We're going to protect you. We're going to keep you out of trouble. We're going to help you when you get into trouble. And we're going to help you achieve your, your dreams and your possibilities. And I think that's probably three-fourths of the value that we create for our customers is spiritual. It can't be measured. And if you can illustrate that some way to the customer or communicate that some way to the customer, then you're going to be perceived as much higher value than just a lawyer who say is just more transactional. Yeah. I think like where I'm struggling is the ideas and the concepts resonate with me and my, my integrator brain, my rules follower brain is like, okay, how do I get to that? Because again, I come back to the billable hours just easy, right? I have a rate and I spend some time on something and I multiply it out and there's a price. And it's obviously more complicated. It's more nuanced and it's better. I could see where it would be better for both parties, but I, I could also hear people say, okay, but is it that you have a conversation with the client and you start uncovering this information so that you can then provide a price to them? Is that how the process would look? Yes. You're having that value conversation or whatever you want to call it to see if, if you're a good fit for this customer. It's, it's actually kind of a pre-qualification. It's also part pre-qualification of the customer to see if they're a good fit. Sometimes we probably shouldn't be working with the customer because maybe they have unreasonable expectations or they're not a good fit for our firm, whatever it might be. But once you get past that qualification process, I kind of use the analogy of if you go to a home builder or a contractor and you say, build my dream house. Well, what's your dream house? What's, what does that mean to you, right? That's why we go to an architect and get plans and the architect asks us about our family and how we live and do we entertain and all these things because he's trying to figure out what our dream house is. And we need to play the architect role. And we tend to jump into the contractor role and get our hands, you know, roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty because we like to provide solutions. You know, we like to dive in. That's, that's why the billable hour works so well. I don't have to deal with any of this architectural crap. I can just go in and start pounding nails and bill, send bills. In fact, I don't even have to send the bill. I just fill out a timesheet and the bill goes out automatically. We turn pricing, which is a marketing function, into an administrative task. And that's insane. Yeah. And so what I see, what a lot of lawyers do, and probably a lot of professionals, is they'll listen to this and they'll say, okay, I get it. I need to change the way I charge. Maybe I want to charge, you know, a known price. So I'm going to set a flat fee that I'm going to 
tell the client up front, this is what the price is going to be. And what I see them then do is say, well, okay, this is what they need done. In normal times, that would take me 10 hours and my billable rate is $300 an hour. And so I'm going to multiply those numbers and that will be my flat fee. And so I want you to talk about that. But then what I really want you to talk about is what I hear next is they say, well, it only took me four. So I made money. I am profitable or it took me 12. And so this is a disaster. I lost money. And that, yes, this concept blows my mind. And I know that you're going to help me articulate why lawyers have to get out of this trap. (laughs) Yes. When you build a flat fee by looking at hourly, you know, saying estimating the number of hours, maybe add a fudge factor, maybe you don't. You know, I can't tell you how many firms tell me, oh, yeah, we value price. But then you you dig in a little deeper and you find that's exactly how they're setting their price. I call that value billing and drag, basically, because you're still looking at hours. Now, what I would say to do instead is think of your costs or think of those hours. Right now, those hours are a ceiling over our head. You know, very few firms make above 100% realization. And the thing is, we put that ceiling there. Because the billable hour doesn't talk about value, it's not in the equation. Customer value is not in the equation. It becomes a maximum amount of money that we can make, which is another crazy business model idea. Why would we want a business model that puts a limit, puts a ceiling on our income? What I want you to do is change that ceiling to a floor. So go ahead and estimate the hours and then give that as a price, but make it one of three options. So if you provide two other options to the customer, you know, green, gold, platinum, classic, you know, good, better, best, small, medium, large, then what happens is the customer gets to decide what value price trade-off works for them best. And so providing options, a real powerful pricing strategy that people can do almost immediately. Yeah, perfect. So then once they've done that and they've gotten a, so they can consider the number of hours it might take and that i hear you saying that could be an option then talk to me about why looking at whether a a representation was profitable or not using that old model just doesn't work because i think people get really tripped up on this idea and it's i think it's apples and oranges but i want to hear your explanation It is apples and oranges, and we have cost accountants to blame for this, and I'm also a recovering cost accountant. We have this idea that if my hourly rate is $200 an hour and I spent five hours on something, it cost me $1,000 to produce, what cash did you pay? Are you paying your people $200 an hour? Obviously, there's a profit component in that $200, and that's not cost, and it's certainly not cash cost. So if you've got an, an attorney that you're paying hundred grand a year to, then whether or not they spend five hours on a file or 10 hours, there's no cash difference, none, zero. It's so the idea that the $200 an hour hourly rate represents a cost is insane. There's a, usually a third, maybe more profit built into that. Real cost is taking your income statement, your P&L total costs, And dividing it by the number of hours that you bill, which of course is highly dependent upon volume. So if you add a few clients at the end of the year, that means you've been overcharging every other client prior to that. So it's this cost accounting game that has nothing to do with cash or really profit. And what I'm talking about when I say profit is cash, cash flow. We're in business to make cash, not accounting profit. 
Yeah, that's super helpful. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to follow up with a few more questions along those lines. The Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could clone yourself? You could take a call while you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Since you can't be in two places at once, let Posh answer. Posh is a team of professional, U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365 to answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm. The Posh app puts you in total control of when your Posh receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to Lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com forward slash Lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Service. That's posh.com forward slash Lawyerist. And by Albatross Legal Workspaces. When running any business, including a law practice, there are critically important operations that are often overlooked and ignored by lawyers. Top on that list is data security, ransomware protection, data leaks, and data backups. Those tasks can seem unimportant and time-consuming or an added cost. And even with IT teams involved, they're often misconfigured and mismanaged. Albatross Legal Workspaces is an excellent solution for law firms to streamline those types of operations. Albatross Legal Workspaces was built to be the all-in-one office for law firms. It stores all your applications, files, desktops, and servers in your own private cloud that is accessible from anywhere. No need for expensive desktop or server upgrades or unresponsive IT companies coming to the office. And the mundane yet critical security and backup operations are seamlessly integrated, hassle-free. The service also includes 24-7 IT help desk. Albatross Legal Workspaces covers you from A to Z. To learn more and receive one month of free service, please visit albatross.cloud forward slash lawyerist. That's A-L-B-A-T-R-O-S-S dot cloud forward slash lawyerist. And by Postali. Finding a marketing partner for your firm can be challenging. Are you getting sound advice? Is your marketing agency always working in your best interest? You shouldn't have to worry about these things. At Postali, they believe marketing companies should adopt the same duty to their clients that is required of the legal profession. For this reason, they require that all team members sign a fiduciary oath to act in good faith and put clients' best interests ahead of their own. They service with care, candor, and loyalty. Postali is a full-service digital marketing agency exclusively for lawyers. To learn more about how they're different, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist. That's P-O-S-T-A-L-I dot com forward slash lawyerist. We're back. And so then this begs the question for me as we're talking about understanding what costs we're really putting in to our cases. And so the question might come up, do I still need to track my time in 0.1 increments to know if I'm doing well? Right. We have this obsession when, especially when you quote a price that's based on number of estimated hours. And again, I blame our profession for this, the accountants. We have this fetidization that we have to compare actual to budgeted and get a variance. But 
it's completely unhelpful because we already have a hundred years of timesheet data. We should know what everything takes down to the minute in every firm for every single task that we do. And you know what? We don't. <laughs> People say, well, but this job's completely different. Well, if every job's a black hole or completely different, then why keep timesheets at all? Right? There's no learning in the timesheet because it's not granular enough. And so, no, I don't think the timesheet helps at all in terms of managing your firm because it's a lagging indicator. By the time you see something on a timesheet, it is by definition no longer manageable. So it's kind of like timing your cookies with your smoke alarm. Hmm. I like that. Okay. So then the other big objection that I often hear, so let's just hit this one, is how could I possibly tell someone how much their representation is going to cost? Let's just take, I don't care, any litigation matter because that's really where this comes up. Because I don't know what the other side's going to do. I don't know how many depositions they're going to notice or how many documents they're going to produce or if they're just going to be a complete pain in the ass in the family case about the toaster and we're going to fight over that for six months. And so how do you address that as an objection? Well, by pointing to the law firms that do litigation on a fixed price, Bartlett Beck, Pat Lamb, my colleague, Mark Chin, who's a family attorney in Jackson, Mississippi, He's all fixed price. And of course, family lawyers love to tell me they're litigators. <laughs> they are in court. You know, these issues are not insoluble. We have answers. Now, I don't want you to put a price on something that is outside of your comfort zone. If you do that, then you're taking on some risk. Now, look, I'm happy to take on risk. You know, actuaries, I have earthquake insurance on my house. My insurance company doesn't know when the next quake is going to strike. They have no idea how big it's going to be, and they have no idea what their losses are going to be. And yet they give me a fixed price for earthquake insurance, because if they didn't, I wouldn't know if I could afford it or not. If they said, oh, no, Ron, we'll just put your name on the list. And then when the quake strikes, we'll tally up all our costs, divide it by the number of insurance people on that list who have been paying premiums, and then we'll figure out if we can pay your claims. I mean, business is full of risk. And I'm willing to take on risk. I'm willing to tell the client, hey, I'll take this to the Supreme Court at the right price. Yeah. As the actuaries love to say, there's no such thing as bad risks. There's only bad premiums. And if you start thinking that way, it opens the door to all sorts of innovating pricing models. For example, you can say, well, look, it's going to cost you $250,000 for us to fully litigate this. And we'll do it at that price. Now, if we settle on the steps of the court or we settle within a month or two, we'll give you a clawback. We'll give you half that back or something like that. But now the incentives are in line yeah. between the customer and the lawyer. And I, I feel like I read this in one of your writings, but you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. There's also the, a concept in building you brought up like construction of change orders, where if you're clear on the front end of this is the price we're agreeing on for this scope of work. Then as things change, as things come up, as new depositions are noticed, well, now that wasn't in the original scope of what we agreed to. So now we can have a new conversation and address the new issue, whatever it is. Is, is that reasonable? That's exactly right. Yep. Just like your contractor does if you, know, you hire a contractor to, I don't know, build on a family room or something, and he plows through the wall and he says, you got dry rot and termites. Well, he's going to do a change order because that probably wasn't in the original bid for the game room. 
And just like our auto mechanics, you know, you take your car in for a tune-up and they find out your brakes are shot. Well, you're going to get a call from the service manager when you're at work and he's going to say, your brakes need redoing. And your first question is going to be, how right. much? Right. Right. And imagine if they didn't give you a price. Imagine if they said, well, the mechanic will keep his time card and we're, you know, the shop rate's 175 bucks. That wouldn't help you make yeah. the decision about whether or not you should get your brakes done. He gives you the price. And then what's really neat about this change order concept is the seller maintains the pricing leverage and the buyer gets to make the decision on how to proceed. So you're keeping the buyer in the driver's seat, which is really important. Imagine if the mechanic just fixed the brakes and you went to pick up your car thinking that you're going to pay for a tune-up and now you've got a brake bill on top of it. You'd be pissed. Yeah. And rightfully so. Yeah. And then I guess even on the flip side, you know, where I would go with that example is with the contractor is like, okay, you can get this basic tile for your new kitchen, or you can get this really fancy tile. And, you know, I, my husband jokes that if you give me three choices, I'm going to pick the most expensive. The oh, the most no, expensive. I mean, okay. I'm going to like it. If I don't know the prices, yeah. I inevitably always go to the most expensive. But then when I see the prices, now I have to make a decision and say, right. am I willing to spend more for what I perceive to be a prettier product or a better quality product? I mean, this is how we make buying decisions every single every day, day in every part of our life. Yep. And that's where the options come in so brilliantly is by giving people three options. When you put three options in front of the human brain, they're no longer asking themselves, should I work with, you know, ABC legal firm? It's how should I work with ABC legal firm? Because you're providing context. Remember the second law of pricing is all prices are contextual. Well, now your prices have context and you're providing it. You're putting your own prices within a context. It's kind of like you competing with yourself. Yeah, we have a basic offering. We have this plus offering. And then we have this plus plus offering. Most people do pick the middle, by the way. But there's going to be some people that want that white glove pamper treatment. Some people want to sit in the front of the airplane. Some people want to have the presidential suite. We shouldn't project our price sensitivity onto our customers. Because if we never offer you know, a presidential suite, we'll never sell one. Yeah, it's true. I love everything you're saying because it is so client-centered, quite frankly. And it, I see like law firms with collections issues and it's because they're afraid to talk about money or worse, I think they lie, essentially lie. I'm going to call it a lie because they'll say, well, I bill it $300 an hour. So give me $5,000 retainer and we'll get started for you. Knowing full well, so the client thinks, oh, this is a $5,000 retainer. That's what they hear and what they remember. They have no concept that you're actually building them a $25,000 divorce. And so when they start, the bills start coming in and they have no control, they don't know what's going on. They just start getting invoices that they're expected to pay, that they have no way of paying and they're embarrassed to tell you. And now it's, I mean, this is such a train wreck from the start. And if we just... Yep flipped it and had these honest conversations with our client. And the fear is, so I can hear you guys listening right now, you're going to say, but, you know, say I tell them $25,000 and then they're just going to go down the street and hear five and go with that guy. And I'm like, I mean, first of all, we should all be doing this. But if you educate your clients and say, hey, when you hear the guy down the street, because you may go shop this price. In fact, 
I welcome you to, but here's how I want you to shop it. Don't go ask what their retainer is and their hourly rate. Ask them how much it's going to cost if all these things in my case happen or whatever it is. You, I mean, you educate your client and then you invite them to go shop. They probably won't, but if they do, they're at least going to get the actual information and not just some BS answer about a retainer and hourly rate. Yep. I, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, that's brilliant. And and I've heard that from attorneys too. I can't quote the 25,000 because I won't get the client. Better to quote the five and then bill them 25 and really piss them off. But listen, if a professional can't give me a price, I don't care what they're doing. They can't give me a price. I got the wrong professional. The last thing I want to hear from my surgeon being wheeled into ORs, oh, wow, look at that. I've never seen that before. When we start talking about oh, this is a black hole, there are a million things that could happen. Well, my God, talk about raising the anxiety of your customer. If you truly feel that way as a professional, then you have no business taking this matter on because you don't have the professional expertise. I'm not going to go to a general physician who dabbles in heart surgery on the weekends. I want somebody who's done this millions of times. And if you've done it millions of times, thousands of times, hundreds of times, then you should be able to give a price. There's no excuse not to. What you described, I think, Stephanie, is customer abuse. Yeah, I love it. Yes. I mean, I feel like you and I could go on this high horse for a long time. And our <laughs> because, <laughs> sure we could. <laughs> I know. Before we hit record, we were talking about like how long ago I started reading your work, which was super helpful to me as I've been on a mission. My personal mission is to kill the, the billable hour. So we are aligned on that. If someone is listening today and is ready, but needs more help and needs more guidance, I know you've put out so many great written materials, but what's one that we could point to or two in the show notes of where people could go to get started? Implementing Value Pricing, which is my latest book on value pricing written for professional firms. You can get it on Amazon. That would be the book to start. There's an appendix in there for law firm strategies for implementing the billable hour. A lawyer actually wrote the foreword to that book, and he made the switch to value pricing. And so there's some there's some really good information in there for lawyers. Yeah, I love it. So many of the lawyers that I work with in our lab program have made the switch, and they help each other and support each other. And I promise you it is better for you, for your soul, and for your business. So thank you so much for being on today and for having this conversation with me and for being a a fellow warrior against the billable hour. We will, we will do it one day. We will. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10-minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.